This is the Employee to Entrepreneur podcast, the show for the family man who looks to escape his nine to five grind. So if that's you, you're in the right place. I made this show for you because I am you. I'm your host, Brendan Ryan. And today I'm joined by my special guest, Andy Flattery, who's in the financial services business. And together we discuss the idea of how you should enter entrepreneurship as a husband and a father. Do you burn the boats and go right into building your own business or do you try to build a side hustle and to that point is it better to do it when your kids are older or when they're younger and if you stay all the way into the end we'll even discuss a little bit of bitcoin too hey brennan it's great to be here thanks for having me yeah yeah we've been trying to connect for a while so i'm glad to have a fellow bitcoiner on the podcast um very passionate about that subject and maybe we'll get into that a little bit later but for the sake of the audience can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do yeah my name is andy flattery i'm a certified financial planner i own a registered investment advisor um which is a solo advisory firm based out of kansas city missouri and um, I help folks do financial plans for their families as well as I invest on their behalf. And I've uh, been a financial advisor since 2010. I have I launched my firm in 2018, and here we are. Nice. Okay. So there was a, a period of time there where you're kind of working for somebody else, I assume, and then you launched your own firm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I I um I'm like a um. I don't know, a product of the financial crisis. I don't know how old you are, Brendan. I'm 38. So I graduated from college in 2007. I was mm. painting houses. When the housing market crashed in 2007, um, the housing, uh, the house painting business sort of crashed as well too. And um, I thought, well, it's time for me to go get a grown-up job and um, joined a uh investment firm in 2010, which in retrospect was an old school boiler room. Like you've ever read, I've uh, seen the Wolf of Wall Street or um, the movie Boiler Room. It was a le legitimately one of these places. Um, worked there for a couple of years until I figured out really what was going on. Worked for a couple Canadian banks. Um, the second being the Bank of Montreal, BMO, where I was a, um, I was a, a wealth manager in a bank. So I covered the uh, advi uh, retail advisory division across like five or six different branches in Kansas City, more or less a W-2 employee at that point. Um, and then, well, which was one of the reasons why in 2018, I decided to sort of release myself of the golden handcuffs and um, put up my own shingle. And so mm -hmm. that um, that's going to be five years in the fall. Nice. Yeah. So if you were in kind of a Wolf of Wall Street boiler room type situation, it sounds like you're very much in like a sales environment then too, right? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, if, if you know anything about like um, financial services, um, that was literally a stock brokerage firm. So you're, you're selling stock picks, you're raising money for like things like private equity deals. Um, it's a sales role. Your, your job is to bring in money Um it's similar to like maybe any other financial services gig that your buddy from college hit you up at, hit you up with um, selling life insurance or mutual funds or something like that. The, the difference was being it being as how it was a boiler room. We were calling like ultra high net worth 
executives and retirees over the phone, mm-hmm. um, just like the movies, man. Uh, so, so it's, uh, in a lot of ways, it was a, a very good experience because you get the experience of like working with your band of brothers that are making 250 dials a day. You're getting into the office at 530 in the morning to read the Wall Street Journal and then call the East Coast. Um, at the time I was living in, in Boulder, Colorado. And so that was the schedule. And, um, yeah, you get, you get, you get, you get a cut off your first tie when you open your first account. Um, you show up every morning with a clean shave and, and a suit on. And so it was really that sort of culture that, uh, I cut my teeth in. Yeah. That sounds pretty hardcore. Just like the movies, like you were saying, would you say that you learned anything in that time in sales that helped you start your business? Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, I mean, we would do things like buy lists, which I can't, I don't even know if people do that anymore. We would buy lists of like executives. And oh, like a lead list. Um, yeah. Yeah, they do. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so old school, you're call, calling these people over the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't cold called in years just cause I'm a little, I'm, I'm just, I'm over it. But, um, the, the thing that I really gathered from that experience was, just sort of that like East coast finance culture kind of rubs off on you. Um, the, just the, having that tenacity to, um, get up at five 30 and go to work every morning, um, to, to make those dials every day, to ask for the sale, um, to want to beat the guy next to you. Um, and just having that sort of standard of excellence, um, is something that I think, is, is good about that environment. There's, there's, there's sins of that business too, which I don't maybe need to explain because you've seen mm-hmm. the movies, sure. uh, which are a little bit exaggerated, at least in my, in my experience, but, but yeah, just being around that, that band of brothers, you know, as a, you know, a solopreneur right now, if that's what you'd like to call it, I miss that. So it's, it's fun for me to be able to talk to people like you, Brendan, um, which is, you know, a, a benefit of being like having a podcast and having a network of people on Twitter, that I can bounce ideas off of. Um, but I do, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. So I grew up in Iowa, I live in Kansas city. Um, that East coast finance culture, there's something to that, um, where they, uh, they push themselves hard. And, and I, I respect that to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And to your point about, um, you know, having a podcast and, and, and such having social media, growing a personal brand and having a podcast has been one of the best things I've ever done for networking. It's, uh, it's incredible the people that you meet all over the world too, you know, not just uh, in the U.S., but all over the place. So when you started your own financial planning firm, was your approach to, did you start that on the side as you were still working or did you kind of do the burn the boats thing and just went all in right from the get-go? I mean, that would be the way to do it. P- people always ask me for advice about how how to get started and the, ideally, if, especially if you're making a career change, that's what you should do. You should mm-hmm. um, register register your RIA with the state that you live in. Um, luckily, I live in Missouri, which is a pretty sort of um, congenial state for the regulatory environment compared to like maybe uh, Washington State or California or some of these other states. And you could do that as a side hustle um, if you have like 1500 bucks to hire a compliance attorney to help you get started. Um, that's a ballpark figure, but, but you, you could, you could literally just get, get the firm going and start helping your friends and family and getting paid for it. The the problem is since I was already in a traditional, um, 
you know, Wall Street banking sort of environment, you have um, you have um, compliance hurdles to overcome. You have non-compete agreements where, you know, these sort of things are sort of frowned upon. Um, basically, you're working and selling for one firm is what I'm saying. Um, so I think in retrospect, I probably should have figured out some sort of way to, even if I wasn't starting the firm, do some sort of uh, podcast or Twitter account or blog, even if it's by a pseudonym prior to launching the firm to be able to build up some sort of reputation. Um, and so it's not just completely starting from scratch, but that's, that's, that's me speaking uh, with 2020 vision. That's not what I did. I literally had money, some money saved up. I had, um, had an idea in my head as to what it would look like, but Really, it was quitting my job and then the next day, you know, beginning the process of starting up a new firm. And it was several months to get that going mm. um, with uh, with my wife pregnant with our first child on the way. <laughs> so um, that's how it worked. Yeah. I mean, I, so I don't know if if my path is unique, um, but I think in retrospect, that, that's what happened and that's what I would have done differently. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um – there's two two schools of thought with regards to exiting a W two and you know starting your own business. Is one school of thought says start the side hustle, build it up to the point where you can you can jump over. But that's it takes so much longer to do that. I think it's a lot harder because then you're so much more limited in the time that you can invest um, with regards to that. So it sounded like in your case you actually had to burn the boat, so to speak, and just exit your job and start the business. And so I think there's something to be said for that, right? Because it's a, it's a sink or swim, your back's against the wall. Like you have to make it work. Whereas if you're in a position where you do more like I did, where you kept the job and you grew the businesses, you always have like that safety net in the back of your mind. So there's not as much of like, I think tenacity and like not as much motivation there as um, there could be if you, if you did burn the boats, right? It's funny when you mentioned that um, you started the business while your your wife was pregnant with your first child. I had uh, another dadpreneur on the podcast some weeks back named Howie Tan. He's from Singapore, and it was that's the exact same thing for him too. It was like at that period of his life, not only did he become a father, but he also became a business owner. So two major major life changes right there. Um, and so you know, I, I imagine you look back on that part of your life as you know. Uh, quite the crossroads, right? Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm grateful that I had um, a group of friends that it's one of these groups where I would get together with some friends of mine every quarter or so for cigars and whiskey. And we would talk through like what we're doing in our, in our business. And uh, we called it the round table. You sort of get coaching from your, your peers and, and everyone in this group is like, you know, f- maybe five or 10 years ahead of me. So these are good sort of mentors to have where it's close enough to home for them that they can provide, you know, practical boots on the ground advice, but, um, but they're a little bit ahead of where I'm at. So I can sort of look up, look, look up to these fellows. And when my wife was, um, when my wife got pregnant with our first child, I was talking about my firm simple wealth planning is like the 10 year plan. So yeah, someday that would be great. Not sure if I'm quite ready for that yet. And credit to these, these guys sort of giving me the hard advice of saying, you know what? It's only going to get harder. (laughs) 
like, like in the circles that I run in, you know, it's not unusual for families that I hang out with to have five or 10 kids. We've got three and counting, um, you know, five plus years later. And so the idea was it's only going to get harder. And look, worst case scenario, if you flame out, you just go back and get a job. (laughs) And so that was the coaching that I have, that I had, and uh, it ended up being the right advice. Um, and so I'm grateful that I had someone in my ear that was willing to nudge me a little bit to take that leap. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you said that too, because I thought you were actually going to say, um, that they were telling you that the, the, the road to some way, someday often leads nowhere type of thing, right? You say that you're going to do it 10 years from now, but it never ends up happening. Cause that's what a lot of people say about their lives. Right. But to your point about, you know, having kids and doing it when, when you have a family, that's another, that's another thing that, um, I think is an interesting topic and maybe I don't want to say like debated, but I I think that there is two schools of thought about that, right? Like there, there might be some people that say it's best to do it when they're young. Like something Alex Ramosi said recently, um, was that you, you want to build it while they're too young to remember you being this busy rather than where they're too old to forget. And that really resonated with me. I'm actually of that mindset as well. Um, but then you have other people that might argue that the, those first years, like you spend, you know, the most amount of time with your children when they're one to five years old or something like that. And then they get older and older and older. They spend more time with their friends, more time at school or whatever like that. And so there might be something to be said for that as well. It's an interesting, uh, Mm. you know, like I said, kind of a debate, or at least it's a debate in my mind. I don't know who's debating it out there, but <laughs> it's something I've yeah, thought a I've lot about. This Alec, I've been hearing this Alex Hermosi name. Is that somebody I need to check out? Oh yeah, man. Yeah. He's, he's uh, yeah. one of the, probably one of the best entrepreneurs of our generation. I think in my opinion, he's very, very intelligent. His um, most famous book that came out uh, a couple of years ago is called a hundred million dollar offers. And he's just came out with um, a new book. I think this month it might not be out yet, but it's called a hundred million dollar leads. So it's about lead generation. Okay. Um, and yeah, man, it. It, he's, uh, his podcast is incredible. Very wise guy. Um, highly, highly successful entrepreneur, but definitely would recommend you check him out. So going back to when you burned the boats for lack of a better term, and you, you left your job to start your firm, you mentioned that you had some money saved up to do that. If somebody were to take that approach, how much would you recommend that they save up this? I feel like there's a perfect question for you being a financial planner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple different answers for that. Um, and I probably didn't do it perfectly as well as, as well as I could have, but, um, one of the, you know, uh, there's this fella in, in the thought leader in my space. His name is Michael Kitsis. He's done studies on all these things. So if anyone is thinking about like doing what I'm doing and becoming a certified financial planner in their niche, there's opportunity for that. You need to be reading this guy named Michael Kitsis. Um, and what I would say, you know, really, I mean, the the advice is like have six to 12 months of expenses saved up. It's going to be a couple of years of grinding. That was certainly the case for me where I was able to get revenue in the door right away, but not replace my prior W-2 income. Um, and uh, it's th- it's year three or you f- year four where you really get over the hump. And um, like I said, I launched my firm in, at the end of 2018, 
that's kind of what I discovered. Like somewhere in the last year or two is where I was able to sort of just look up and say, oh, thank God we're finally to where I thought we would be um, maybe a year or two in, but it was like uh, three or four years in. Um, and so that was uh, that was something that we're very grateful for. I'm very grateful for. But but yeah, I mean, that's what I would say. Um, and, um, you know, I, a, a, as you pointed out earlier, like I have friends that have attempted to be a, be a dadpreneur and sort of um, run their business on the side. So if you have a certified financial planner, if you have your CFP designation, there are people that will, hi- will hire you to do a part-time job at uh, $50, $60 an hour for 20 hours a week to work for some huge firm in a different state. And that might be a way for you to keep the lights on if you don't have the ability to burn the bridges. Um, there are plenty of those jobs out there right now in the sort of um, gig economy environment. Yeah. So you could run your firm and then you could go out and get a part-time job at some firm somewhere else, learn how things are done at these various places, You know, get a, get a paid internship, but you get paid on the side. I have found that some of those firms though, haven't grown um, as quickly as they might like to grow. And so- that's a trade-off. I didn't do that. I was 100% um, on board with what I was doing. Um, my wife has done a wonderful thing and worked as a part-time nurse as a 1099 employee at the hospital. So she'll work a couple shifts a month just to make a little bit extra money, like on Saturdays. Um, and so that has been one of the things that has helped out our family is my wife has made that sacrifice to give up some Saturdays to work some of these hospital shifts, which during COVID, you know, paid more than normal. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, there's not an easy answer to it, but that's sort of the, uh, the way that it's worked out for us. Yeah. So it sounds like that six to 12 months, 12 months, so let's say 12 months of savings is probably a little too low, right? Like you're saying, it takes like three or four years to, to get to the point where you, you're back where you, you're at least place replacing that old W two income. So I think that that's you know yeah, the pro the problem is because of the regulatory environment and depending on which state you're in, it could be several months before you're even able to mm-hmm. be up and running to just get the legal compliance in order to sort of register your advisory firm with the state that you live in depending on where you're at, like that could take a while. And so some of it is literally just waiting for that to happen before you can even start doing business. So that's one of the challenges there. Why, why, you know, sometimes six to 12 months isn't enough to get it going before you actually start, start to build your firm and get that reoccurring revenue in the door. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really important thing to do your research or due diligence beforehand to make sure that, there isn't some type of regulatory stuff for whatever type of business that you are starting. Um, because yeah, that's going to add a lot of time, a lot of time for sure. But you were, you mentioned something earlier when you were talking about working in other firms, like as a freelancer gig type role, we'll give you an idea of how things work. And that's actually, it made me think of one of the reasons why I like to push sales as I call it the gateway drug to entrepreneurship, because so many people start in sales like a Gary V or an Alex Ramosi um, and go on to build their own businesses. It's a very common thing that I see all the time. But one of the reasons why I think that is, is because when you start in sales, not only are you talking to the market themselves and learning about the customers themselves, which is 
maybe the most important thing about a business is learning about your customers and what they actually need. But also you get to see the inner workings of how a business is run. And so with online businesses, you can see that all over the place, right? But on the other hand, it depends on, you know, what type of W-2 job you have to begin with. Say, for instance, like you mentioned, your wife is a nurse. It's not like even though a nurse might know pretty well how a hospital is run or should be run by working in it for a long time, they can't go out and start their own hospital. It's just not, not a thing that people yeah. do, right? So it kind of depends on the the job that you have. Like if you were a plumber or something like that, I think that that's probably pretty pretty common for home services guys to go out there and eventually hopefully start their own their own business having learned the trade so to speak but um yeah i think that that's that's interesting that that was the case for you so do you do you have a brick and mortar business like an actual office or is it completely online uh bo- both so i'm speaking with you at my home office right now because today I'm doing work in the backyard and smoking a brisket all day long. I'm here in Kansas City, so nice. that's my Kansas City barbecue coming out. But I also have an office that I meet with clients locally at, as well as as do as work virtually with folks around the country. Um, so the idea there is that it's still human interaction, which is always better in person. Although there are certain things that I can do in my business that doesn't require folks to get together in person. Um, But also as my family has grown, it's harder to work at home. So um, it's nap time right now in my house, but you might hear some kid knock on my office door here at some point during this podcast that could happen. But um, that's the beautiful thing about having a solo advisory firm is that so I can do whatever I want and, um, I can take a broader interest in my oldest son who's four right now and skip out of the office to go take him to his piano lesson, piano lessons on Wednesday afternoon or give him a reading lesson or uh, uh, coach a little um, uh, four-year-old t-ball team for him. Um, and so you have a lot of flexibility there. But, uh, but yeah, I do find like going to the office is really helpful with the growing family as well too. Um Sometimes it's just better to like for me to get out and ha- and plug in to uh, an actual like professional working environment. I can completely relate to that. I, I struggle with the same thing, uh, especially with the podcast because the studio is at my house. So when the kids are out there <laughs> screaming, man, um, sometimes my editor has to do some extra work to try to make that sound a little bit better. Yep. So I get what you mean, and I think that there's something to be said for being out of the house. You can just focus a little bit better because you're not thinking about your yard work or whatever it might be. That's, uh, that's something that you might do at home. So Andy, when you were building your business, what would you say that the hardest thing about that was? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, so one of the beautiful things about the world that I broke out of, um, which was sort of traditional finance, working for a large corporation, um, staffed with lawyers and compliance consultants and, uh, you know, huge, uh, staff handbook and things like things of that nature is that I was wowed with the possibilities of what I could do as an entrepreneur. Um, I'm sort of like a creative person in some ways. Like I have fun trying to tinker with various ways of running my business, which was not possible at my prior firm. (laughs) 
So for example, like, uh, you know, you, you and I met, I think on Bitcoin Twitter, um, at my prior employer, like you, you don't even say the word Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, like you can't even talk about it. Yeah. And so the ability to tinker with different things, different interests, um, as an entrepreneur is, you know, it's, I love it, but it's also a challenge. I would say the biggest challenge was specifically trying to figure out how to invest in, in marketing and growth. Um, and I, you know, I probably spent at least $10,000 in those, uh, first years in, you know, various consultants and coaches and, um, you know, social media ad spends and things of that nature, um, website design that in retrospect, it was like, it was like throwing stuff at the wall and just hoping something would stick. It was not very focused. It was me sort of trying to gin up growth immediately because I wanted to hit the ground running fast. So it was like, I was, I sell, I certainly fell victim to that, um, that dilemma there. And, um, I mean, I think it, you know, I, I guess I have to justify this in some way. I learned a few things. I did bring in some business doing that. In retrospect, was it worth the amount of time, investment, and monetary investment that I put into it? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think if I was starting today from from square one, I would have a Twitter account. I would have a podcast and and my website, and that probably would be about it. I wouldn't screw around with um, – too much, uh, cute, like LinkedIn funnels and things of that nature. I would just start playing the long game. And with the idea that in two or three years, there would be listeners to my podcast that have now a intimate relationship with me because they've listened to five or 10 episodes, which is by the way, what I have now, like it's, that's sort of what has happened, Mm -hmm. um, is that I get emails, um, weekly of folks that like totally get me because they've, been going down the rabbit hole and listen to every episode of my podcast. And just now they're reaching out after like a year or two of, of that. So that's really, really cool. And uh, it took me a while to figure that out, that playing the long game was going to be the better investment than trying to sort of gin up a bunch of growth in year one. Yeah. Yeah. With regards to marketing and lead generation, paid ads and everything is, uh, get you fast results. It'll be really expensive though, mm-hmm. but long game strategies like a podcast are the gifts they keep on giving. Cause once that, that podcast is up online, it's up there forever and people will listen to it sometimes years later and you build a brand that way. They get to know who you are, what you stand for, what you're about and all that kind of stuff. The other long game strategy that's pretty good is actually SEO. The problem with it is Google will change their algorithm sometimes. And so, but it's, it's pretty good in terms of, um, a more of a slower yet you get more warm inbound organic traffic that way, as opposed to going more like the funnel route where you, you're trying to push people down the funnel, paying for ads and all that kind of stuff. So that makes sense. That makes sense to start with the long game stuff. And to that point, you know, if you're thinking about building your own side hustle your own business, you can start that on the side before you exit the W2, right? You can boot, boot up a podcast, do one episode a week, something like that. It's not too, too time consuming. Boot up a Twitter. By the way, you, you mentioned um, Twitter. Do you like Twitter the best? Like why, why Twitter? I think 
I think, well, yeah, because I, 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 uh, I think I started with LinkedIn in 2018, which was something I was coached on from a marketing consultant with the, I think the idea was that LinkedIn was just there more opportunity because there's like nothing good on LinkedIn. <laughs> so, so if you post, post anything of value on LinkedIn, it will do well. Right. And, um, what I, what I discovered with, with Twitter, um, is not that I've gone viral. I think I have like a thousand followers or something, but it's been a really nice networking tool. Um, so for example, like I will, I've connected with other advisors around the country that are sort of in the niche that I'm in. Um, they've come on my podcast. I've come on that on theirs. And now one of the, uh, biggest sources of sort of new business in at my firm is just referrals from other advisors. Um, so, you know, uh, other advisors that have maybe a broader reach than I do on Twitter or YouTube or whatever the case may be, um, get incoming interest in their firm that um, they're not, they're not a fit for everyone because, you know, if you're a solo advisor, you, you, just, you can't work with everyone. It's not possible, but they might be a better fit for me. And so I get a lot of referral business from other advisors. And these are just folks that a lot of them I've met on Twitter. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's just connecting with people on Twitter, having them on my podcast. And then it's sort of been a way for me to build my tribe. And, um, and these are not people here locally, like they're, they're all around the country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have also found Twitter to be a fantastic networking tool. And I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, it's more open, a more open network, right? Like people see your tweets and they not, might not be following you type of thing. Whereas that's not necessarily the case on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram. It's more open and that plus it's less censored. I think it's a much more libertarian network um, than some of these other social media platforms that do a lot more like you, for instance, the idea of talking about Bitcoin or crypto, like that's harder to do on these other platforms. Not impossible by any means, but most of the, the crypto crowd, if you will, is on Twitter for a reason, you know? So yeah, I totally agree with you there. Most of the guests that have had on the pla on the podcast actually have been from, from Twitter. So, and they've been from all over the world, like I was saying. So Andy, I think the other, I think the other thing too, Brennan, maybe I'd love to hear your perspective on this is my podcast is not on YouTube. And part of my thinking there is like my target audience, my ideal client, I don't know if they're on YouTube. Um, I don't know if like successful people watch YouTube videos, but I do think they probably listen to podcasts as like, um, you know, what they're doing on their run or in the car. Um, I don't know if like successful, really successful people are going to take the time to watch a hour podcast on YouTube, but there are successful people on Twitter. So I think I've decided to focus on that instead of YouTube. I have an audio podcast, but that is also a way for me to say I'm too lazy to launch a video podcast. And uh, it's just an audio podcast right now, but um, maybe you're saying different things than what I've seen. I think that YouTube is an incredibly powerful platform, but the competition on YouTube nowadays is, in, is extremely intense. It's very, very, very tough to grow a YouTube channel um, because most of the people that are on YouTube are watching shorter videos. That said, there are plenty of long form podcasts 
on YouTube that do quite well. It just it just really depends because you, if you pay for YouTube premium, for instance, you can listen to it and close your phone without having to have the video be playing. And so there, I, I do post it to YouTube as well. And I think, like I said, it's a really important, powerful platform. If you do grow a YouTube channel, that is another great way to have um, play the long game. In other words, just like we were talking about podcasts in general or SEO strategies, long game strategies rather than the um, the quick stuff. Um, I think that, that YouTube does offer that as well. Um, and I think, though, to your point that you're you're right about there probably being less highly successful people on YouTube, but that doesn't mean there's none there. There, there for sure is some, but you, you might be right that the highly successful are probably more prone to listen to, you know, the, a podcast by Alex Ramosi. It's called The Game, for instance, um, that kind of thing. I think you're probably right about that. So, Andy, um, to, to pivot just a sec and talk more about family life, um, being a dad of three, how... Do you have any tips, tricks, hacks for us us guys like me that uh, could use some some advice in terms of work life balance? How do you stay balanced in your with your business and your family life? Yeah, um, I read years ago. I read this Matthew Kelly book called Off Balance, and uh, he was like a management consultant who you know wrote like. Um, he wrote this book, which was about this whole thing. And anyway, his idea was what you alluded to earlier about, um, I think you said that name, Alex Ramosi again, but his idea is that there are times in your life where it's appropriate for you to hustle and maybe be focused on your business. Cause that's, um, the season of your life that you're in. And that, then there are other times where it's more appropriate for you to put your foot off the gas. And um, I think what is really, what has really helped me is um, this is going to sound cliche, but it's a hundred percent true. And it does matter because I've seen it. I've seen it work all different ways, but I really have a supportive wife that um w- thrives staying home with the kids. <laughs> and it's just an amazing thing. Cause like I, I do it sometimes too. Like I'll, I'll stay at home with the kids like a day. She does it every day and she loves it. And I'm not saying like, it's always easy for her because like, I, I know it's not like our kids are a challenge as are everyone's kids on certain days. But, um, she, she loves playing with the kids. She loves teaching them things. She loves taking them to do activities, meeting up with other stay-at-home moms and, you know, sort of developing their little community. And um, I don't know how people do it without that. Like um, I, I think it ha- it would be a challenge if she was working 40 hours a week as well too. And we were having to cart the kids to some sort of daycare every day and, and pay the money to do that. Um, I think that just would add more complication and stress to our life. But I mean, we have a lot of flexibility. So, um, you know, next week we're taking a week long vacation. Um, we just go like, I, I'll just turn the out of office messages on on my devices and my clients will get notified that, um, I'm there if there's an emergency, but otherwise like we're just going to be gone for a week and we don't have to tell the daycare and we don't have to, um, we don't have to do anything. We just leave. And so 
I don't know. Um, I don't know what the advice is other than just marry a, a good woman who sort of like aligns with your values and is supportive of that sort of thing. But she allows me to work um, pretty typical work hours. As I said earlier, like I have some flexibility to that. So um, like yesterday, my wife wanted to go have a hair appointment in the afternoon. So I took the afternoon off and hung out with the kids. Why, why she did that. That also means that sometimes I'm recording a podcast with somebody at nine 30 at night or, you know, um, uh, reading up on a, uh, a particular financial planning topic for a client after the kids have gone to bed, um, or, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, you sort of figure it out. But I do think the cliche is true. I don't know what you think, Brennan, like you do have the motivation. Like I'm sort of fired up to like get this done because like, I want to make this work for my kids. Like I, I want to be able to provide this life for my wife. Um, I want to have something to pass on to my kids when they get older. So if they want to help dad out in the business, that's going to be there for them. Um, and I didn't have that sort of motivation before. Like I'm one of these guys that doesn't have this sort of like intrinsic you know, Tiger Woods motivation where it's just like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a born diehard killer. Like that's not really me. Like I sort of need external <laughs> nudges. Um, I kind of said that earlier when I was talking about the band of brothers and certainly having a family is one of those things that like allows you to get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, when you were talking about having a wife that is a stay at home mom, it made me think of like multiple examples of, the most successful dadpreneurs that I know in my life. And that is the case for them. And I think there is a hundred percent something to be said for the, those roles, if you will. I know that might make certain people out there mad about that, but um, I think that there's this inherent drive as a man to want to provide for your family. And um, that's what motivates a lot of guys, I think, to eventually start their own business so that they can control their time like you do to be able to go take a vacation whenever they want, maybe leave a legacy for their kids, all that kind of thing. So I a hundred percent hear you and, and do agree yeah. um, on that, on that topic for sure. I, um, yeah. And I'm not, as I, as I sort of, um, I said earlier, like I, I'm not one of these, my, my wife has worked, you know, my wife has worked um, while we've had kids as well too. And it's, you know, as, as the business has grown has allowed her to stay at home, but I'm not one of these dogmatic people, um, in the manosphere or something that's going to preach that one way or the other, but it's just, it's obvious. And, and Brennan, we should, right. we should be able to say the obvious thing. And I'm convicted about that because like, even in like the financial planning space, um, a lot of financial advisors, like they think they're cute by, you know, maybe talking about how, you know, you don't really need to combine your finances with your spouse. You know, if you have the right apps or whatever, like it's not necessary and, and, you know, maybe they would overemphasize the idea that in certain families, you know, Mrs. Jones is the breadwinner and like Miss, Mr. Jones is the stay at home dad. But what happens is like you, a lot of times, like you make the exception, the rule, and it's just stupid. Like, why don't we just say true things out loud in the case of like, you know, young moms are nurturing and like to stay home with kids and young fathers like to be providers if you um if you can just say true things out loud, it sort of gets you a long way where even like in the financial planning space, we want to avoid those sort of um politically incorrect conversations that are also obvious. 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's always exceptions. You know, it's a generality. But yeah, I hear you, man. Absolutely. On the topic of of families, I saw one of your tweets that you tweeted a few days back um, about, and it made me think of something that I think I've talked about on the podcast before, but it is a goal of my life as well. But I'm just going to read it real quick. It says, I like how Christopher Nolan treats his films as a family business, intentionally collaborates with his family and friends. His wife produces the films and his brother co-writes. His kids are on the set. He's basically a home setter that makes awesome movies. I've thought about that as well in terms of my life and how I think the idea of having like the old school, like I think that back in the day, if you rewind like a hundred years ago, the idea of having a family business was much more common, right? Where the kids worked in it, the wife worked in it, et cetera. But I think it also makes for a much more cohesive life where you don't have like, you know, mom going to her job and dad going to her job and the kids going to school. And then you just come back for a couple of hours in the evening and talk about each other's days. Whereas like when you go, and you're, do, you're living that life all together. It just makes, like I said, for a much more cohesive life. Have you thought about doing that with um, your family? Yeah, I mean, I love it. My, my grandfather uh, was a farmer in Iowa. And one of the things I always think about with grandpa is, you know, he wasn't wealthy, although maybe now you might say he was because of the price of farmland. But, you know, certainly that was not the case for most of grandpa's life. But he had sort of a level of financial independence, you know, in, in owning the farm. And he never really retired, you know, like, um, I don't think he wanted to, like, you just think he, like what grandpa did was farm. And even in his eighties, he was always driving out into the fields and, you know, checking up on the crops and he would like take naps in his truck and stuff like that, you know, as an old, as an old man. So he never retired. And I always thought that that is such a beautiful benefit to like, not only farming, but, I've noticed that a lot with um, not only entrepreneurs, but even like people that just have some sort of practice, you know, like I consider what I do is more of a practice because if like Andy is really the, the firm right now, there's no like scalable um, firm right now that I could go out and sell or like attorneys, you know, that have some sort of private practice, they, they don't really have to retire, you know, like, and why, and why would you, if you enjoy what you do? And so the reason why I made the comparison to the homesteaders, and by the way, like you said, like in, you know, medieval Europe or something like that, you would have these like family estates where the whole family was involved. You know, the wife, look, the wife was working very hard and oftentimes she would know the husband's business very well. And like the husband would die, she would take over and often do a better job than he did at like running the estate. But I, I make the comparison to the homesteaders and for two reasons. Number one, I, I do admire them and I think there's a lot to sort of gain from that movement. But, but number two, like I'm also sort of skeptical that that, that is the way um, to go back to like, you know, some sort of Amish lifestyle. Like that's just not – that's not what I think my strengths are and I don't think it's totally necessary. I think there's a way to utilize technology without having to be like a victim of big tech or big, big pharma. You know, some of the things that a lot of these folks are trying to like retreat from. And so, but yeah, Christopher Nolan, he's got a family business. It's got, it's not a homesteading. It's not a, an actual homestead, but it's sort of everything that you might want from that in, in the sense that he collaborates with his wife, his children are on the set. His brother is a, um, a co-writer on his films and, um, 
he's sort of like an analog guy in a digital world. Like he doesn't use a lot of CGI and stuff like that. I think he, um, he types out like executive summaries of his films on a typewriter. Like when he's making a film, he'll, he'll write like a one pager of like, Hey, this is what this film's about. And Christopher Nolan's, his idea there is this is like my mission statement. So like, if we are, if, if we're not figuring out how to finish this, like we're going to have this one page. Anyway, it's a sort of an analog thing to do, right? You do that on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. So he's got some of these like homesteading tendencies, but he's of course making these like groundbreaking films. So I like that sort of combination there. Um, there's a great podcast. Uh, it's called the founders podcast by David Senra. Have you seen this yet, Brennan? Mm-mm. No, uh, it's, it's, it's great. He he's doing um, these uh, book summaries of these like founders of businesses. And in this case, Christopher Nolan, but that's where I got that anecdote from about how Nolan runs his films, like, like small business, uh, family businesses. And so I agree. I think it's an avenue, um, for, for the dadpreneurs for sure. Yeah. I like how he, it almost seems, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but it almost seems like he's trying to tailor the job that he's giving each person in the business to their strengths too, right? It might be that his, you know, his brother likes to write or whatever. His kids like to be extras on the set or something like that. Um, so I, I just think that that's really cool to be able to, to give that to them too, so that their talents are used as well. So anyway. Yeah. yeah I think um, if you've ever seen Interstellar, the, the, the daughter in the film, uh, was written as a, a young boy and the uh, Christopher Nolan interact was interacting at the time with his daughter, who was like the age of the person in the film. He, they decided to change that character from a boy to a girl because he was inspired by his little, his little daughter. So it's a little example as to like how even that, a lot of that has come across in the movies themselves um, by the family being involved. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. And to your point about the homesteading thing, I, I think, you know, I like that idea too, just because it's a romantic idea to be like totally yeah. self-sufficient, independent, live off the land, all that kind of stuff. But I do also think that it's uh, probably not all it's cracked up to be, right? <laughs> right? Like you go yeah. out and do that and you're like, man, this is boring or something. I don't know. I, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. But well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, not to make fun of the homesteaders because I, I really mean it when I, I respect a lot, but but they're also all on the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like what does a homesteader do if he doesn't have a, a you know high speed internet connection? Like if uh, you know if a homesteader can't post his homesteading pictures on Instagram, like is he even a homesteader? So I, <laughs> that's my little my little rub there. But um, I guess they're no, all I, using I Starlink from Elon Musk or something like that. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Respect to Elon there for providing that to the homesteaders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, to that point, I think that, that that movement seems to be somewhat popular among Bitcoiners, both of which we are. Um, something that has, uh, and it makes sense that you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that you kind of started your bit or you just got, you exited college right as the great financial crisis was going on. And that's what birthed Bitcoin. Right. And so this isn't a Bitcoin podcast, but because I have a fellow Bitcoiner on the podcast, I really want to ask you, do you have you thought about at all like the the relationship between Bitcoin and entrepreneurship? Do you think that there there's any overlap there that they, they offer each other benefits, if you will? Yeah. So the, the, the quick and dirty answer is that, um, well, there's Bitcoin, the network and Bitcoin, the asset, you know, with regards to Bitcoin, the network, it, 
you could plug your business into the Bitcoin network today. And, you know, some folks in, in Bitcoin call, call it the cheat code where you're immediately sort of plugging yourself into a tribe that will support you, that there's an ethos to, there's like bylaws almost in, in a sense. Um, so for example, like there's an Australian baseball team that made themselves the Bitcoin baseball team. Like they rebranded their team. They accept Bitcoin for payment. Like it's in their merchandise. Now they have like um, interest from all over the world in this like Australian minor league baseball team. Uh, Peter McCormick did it with a soccer club in the UK. I've done that with my firm. So by me sort of plugging my sort of conventional registered investment advisor into sort of the Bitcoin network, it's been a cheat code for me to be able to um, gain traction with like, you know, uh, not just Bitcoiners, but like, you know, Bit, uh, Bitcoin in, uh, curious folks that like want to include this in their financial plan and they want to talk with a CFP who's not going to like poo-poo them for wanting to do this, right? And so that's Bitcoin, the the, uh, the network. With regards to Bitcoin, the asset, I mean, there's a ton here um, that we could talk about. There's, um, have you heard of Guido Holzman yet, Brennan? I haven't, no. He's uh, he's great. He, he um, he's a, uh, He's an Aust Austrian economist and a Catholic who wrote the best book about Bitcoin that's not about Bitcoin called The Ethics of Money Production. Came out in like 2007. And uh, so it's, it was pre-Bitcoin, but like it's everything about it is like essentially the, the, the case for Bitcoin. But um, he's got a an idea and uh, I just pulled this up before the call, but there's a quote in that book. It says, the entrepreneur who operates with 10% equity and 90% debts is not really an entrepreneur anymore. His creditors, usually bankers, are the true entrepreneurs. Thus, fiat inflation reduces the number of true entrepreneurs. So, so Bitcoin is sort of the anti-fiat. It's like getting back to um, a hard money currency again. And that has broad implications for the economy. And I think, according to Guido Holzman, has broad implications for the for entrepreneurship. So for example, um, what you see now with like the best people in the world, the best people that come out of Ivy league institutions, um, the best people that are, you know, built, sometimes building an audience on Twitter, um, is they're not like inventing the next best thing, you know, maybe Elon aside, they're not building rocket ships to Mars. Oftentimes what they're doing is they're starting a hedge fund, <laughs> <laughs> or they're they're you know, buying up like tranches of private businesses and starting their own hold co or something like that. It's like they're financial engineering, right? So the best people in the world they're finding that like yeah, like maybe it's not it's I don't have my eyes to the stars like I could, but it's just easier and I can make more money if I sort of just financial engineer my way to some sort of hedge fund that's going to pay me, you know, seven figure income. And you see that all the time. Like everyone has a hedge fund. Everyone has some sort of private holding companies. So in sort of the fiat economy, the, the, the best and brightest are not running, you know, these sort of businesses that we, we might want to see out of a vibrant economy. They're running some sort of fund. And I say that with full knowledge that I work in financial services. I, I have an advisory firm. I, I manage money for people. I am aware that this risk exists in my business where there's a chance that sort of Bitcoin just demonetizes all this or it de-financializes the economy where it's not all about, you know, optimizing your portfolio 
or, you know, launching some fund of funds to, you know, try to, you know, increase your market returns, but it's actually starting real businesses that provide real value for people. Um, and I'm not against hedge funds or private equity fundamentally, but you can sort of see that how that trend happens where everyone is sort of going to the financial route in terms of like, um, how they're going to, you know, build their career. And hope yeah. I hope I didn't ramble too much, but that's the, the the general idea is that hard money standard sort of definancializes the economy and brings back real entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I've never thought of that before. Right? That was a really cool quote. You gave me a lot to think of there, and I think because you mentioned, you know, that you realize that you, you're in in finance, but I think it's because you're in finance that that might be more obvious to you than than most people. Most people not might not think about that, but yeah, I think that. Um, I think that they have a lot to offer each other, both Bitcoin and entrepreneurship. I've noticed, for instance, um, that most entrepreneurs are usually people that are very much like freedom loving, right? They they often get into it so that they can be their own boss or they can own yeah. their own time or whatever it might be. The same is very much true of Bitcoiners, right? Like they're hardcore, you know, freedom lovers. Um, but that that's a really interesting idea. You know, I think um, it doesn't surprise me that an Austrian a economist said that because there's quite a bit of overlap too with Bitcoin and, and Austrian economics, um, which is, you know, almost like the opposite type of economy than we find ourselves operating in. <laughs> Everything seems so yeah. Keynesian. Um, but anyway, Andy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. If somebody wanted to um, find out more about you or your services, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah. So what I would say is the best jumping off place is the Reformed Financial Advisor podcast. You find that on any podcast platform or just search my name, Andy Flattery. And uh, my handle on Twitter is at Andy Flattery. And uh, Brendan, yeah, this was great, man. Yeah, we could have kept going and uh, I'll have to have you on my show to do the same. But um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Th thanks so much for coming on. I I'm glad to have a finance guy. So guys, if you're listening to the show, please give it a like and subscribe if you're on YouTube or maybe leave a review if you're on Apple Podcasts. And if you're thinking about making the leap from employee to entrepreneur, we hope that you find the courage to do so because I truly believe that the world needs more entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs solve problems. And there's plenty of those out there. So if you're thinking about doing that, go ahead and join me and join Andy, make the leap from employee to entrepreneur, and we will see you on the other side.